Welcome to Method to the Mathness podcast, a podcast about the universal truths in mathematics teaching and learning. We are your hosts, Nikki Lalonde and Jennifer Lenhart, and we are so glad you're here. Our hope and our vision and goal for this podcast is to have conversations that both affirm what we know to be true about teaching and learning mathematics and to inspire all of us to keep growing and learning. Our guest today is Kathy Seeley. She has been a math teacher, a K-12 district coordinator, as well as a K-12 state director of mathematics in Texas. From 99 to 2001, she taught mathematics in French as a Peace Corps volunteer in Burkina Faso. Dr. Seeley served as the president of NCTM from 2004 to 2006. She has authored several books, including two titles from ASCD, Making Sense of Math for Teachers, and Building a Math-Positive Culture for Leaders. Other recent books are Faster Isn't Smarter and Smarter Than We Think. Dr. Seeley is retired but continues to stay busy as a speaker, a writer, and a consultant on improving mathematics education, teaching, and learning at the local, state, and national levels. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Kathy. Well, welcome, Kathy. Jennifer and I are so excited to be able to have um, this time to have some conversation with you around math education and teaching and learning. So welcome, and thank you for joining us today on Method to the Mathness. Thanks, Nikki. I'm really excited to be here with with both of you and to have this conversation. Um, It's a beautiful day in Austin, Texas, and I'm excited to, to get into thinking about math. Awesome. Awesome. Well, one thing that we know that we want to kick off this conversation with, and we're always so incredibly interested in is people's math story as a learner. And so I'm, I'm hoping that you'll um, share with us your math story as a learner. Well, sure. Thank you. Um, Actually, my math story starts when we called it arithmetic. And that was back (laughs) in, in elementary school. And all I knew was I was a pretty mediocre student in arithmetic, and uh, that was validated by my mediocre scores on on the Iowa test of basic skills throughout elementary school. I was bored with what was going on in class. It was all about computation. I was okay at it, but I really didn't think it, it certainly wasn't my favorite. But in seventh grade, I was in Mr. Bender's math class, and it happened to be the time before you all were born, when uh, it was an era of what they called new math at the time. And it was really one of the first waves in in mathematics, at least, of believing that students should understand more than just how to do things, but should understand some very deep concepts underlying the structure of mathematics. And it it was probably a little bit overboard in terms of focusing on set theory and, and rigorous definitions and so on. But What it also was about was broadening our view of what mathematics is in terms of content. And what I remember from Mr. Bender's math class was, oh my gosh, there's really interesting problems to solve. And oh my gosh, you mean that cool geometric design, that's about mathematics? And I started seeing all these different aspects about mathematics and it completely changed my view about math. And it turned out to change my performance as well. And and instead of being a mediocre student, I started being a good student. And doing well on standardized tests and deciding that mathematics was something that I wanted to do in the future. And 
um, that that transformation I know deeply affected how I came to view teaching and learning as an educator um, many years or a few years at least on down the road after that. So Kathy, something that you shared in your story that um, caught my attention was this idea of how the math changed. So the tasks before you or the types of problems or the way the problems were presented engaged you in a new and different way um, in thinking and in approaching those. And it shifted you um, from being a mediocre math student to a student that did well in math. And I think there's that there's something very powerful in the math activities or tasks that are put put before students. And um, so anyways, that stood out to me about your math story. I appreciate you sharing that. Well, and I, I think you're absolutely right, Nikki. I think that, um, that the, na- the nature of tasks to be more than just typical types of very basic word problems, going beyond that to be thinking about problems that involved a little bit of thinking and even a bit of creativity sometimes. And that's what hooked me in. And that's what really sort of changed my path in school. Kathy, as I'm listening to you, I'm really struck by the idea. It's You mentioned a thing about somewhat basic word problems, and I know many of us encountered in our own learning, it was sort of like arithmetic doused in a word problem. It wasn't actually a problem with an interesting problem to solve, as you're describing some of the others that you encountered, you know, seventh grade and beyond maybe. And it's interesting to think about, we do that a lot, I think, in whether it's curriculum or whatever. But when you get down to the nitty gritty of what is being asked of students in the context of this word problem, is it problem solving or is it arithmetic buried in a bunch of words? And those are different. Those are different sorts of tasks that then yield different sorts of engagement and ultimately impact trajectory. The idea that the daily tasks we choose for students and how we ask them to engage in that could impact their entire career trajectory. Um, aside from being in the field of math education or being a mathematician generally, but also your identity as a learner was impacted as seeing yourself as a person interested in or capable of mathematics and the field itself um, and your your place or your role belonging in that field. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there's it, it's not that word problems are bad and we we should only look for these rich, exciting, in-depth kinds of tasks, is that there are levels of problems and they serve different purposes. And the notion, as you've identified, that that we can we can have a huge impact on students' ident- mathematical identity by the choice of what problems we offer them, boy, is that both exciting and liberating and at the same time terrifying. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It makes us realize that those decisions we make have are, are really important. Those day to day instructional decisions about the tasks we're going to use, and you know, sometimes maybe if we've just if students have just come off of learning a new kind of, of procedure or a new process for solving certain kinds of problems, maybe then there's there's a, a, a somewhat use for practicing those in a little bit of context. But those aren't real problems, and I keep. I keep coming back to the notion that for me, the problems that made a difference for me were the ones that made me think. And I think too often when we believe that mathematics teaching is about telling kids stuff and then expecting them to practice and remember it and give it back to us on tests, 
whenever we do that, we're not giving them opportunities to learn to think. And if we don't, then they're certainly not going to learn to think mathematically if they've never, if they've never done it. Absolutely. Which makes me think, you know, this relationship between the tasks our students engage in, in regular daily instruction in their learning, and then the impact that that has as far as their learning and then their ability to be critical thinkers, which ultimately does impact their ability to um, engage with high stakes assessments. And I'm thinking, you know, at this time of year, as we head into January and on the way to the spring season of high stakes assessment and testing how would you describe like what makes good sense for teachers to be honing in and focusing on from now as as we look at test prep in a way that fosters critical thinking rather than in a way that fosters memorization or rote repetition? I think that's a, a great question, Jennifer. And I think that the whole idea of test preparation is one of the things that has sidetracked too many teachers. And frankly, often with a lot of pressure from their uh, administrators. And Mm. what I see happening in too many schools, especially at this time of year, is a race to cover the content in time to say, okay, I did my job. I got through it all before they were tested on it. And one of the things I really encourage teachers to do is to think consciously about the choice they're making in terms of covering content Frankly, if we do it quickly, it's going to be done very superficially. So a choice between covering content quickly and superficially versus covering perhaps less content, but doing it in ways that really build deep conceptual understanding and let students solidify their learning. I've often talked about the idea that we, we see, we've learned from other countries that we have a, in the United States a tendency to not finish what we're doing with students. In other words, not give them an opportunity to finish learning the mathematics they're doing. And granted, it might, we might not have enough time to let every student deeply finish learning conceptually and, how to, uh, and, and deeply every mathematical topic we have to, have to deal with in our, in our grade level or at, in our high school courses. But I do think we can make some choices about the big ideas at each grade level And realize that it's so important for students to have some deep conceptual understanding of at least a few key basic overarching uh, concepts or ideas or ways of thinking. And in the process, they're actually building their ability to figure things out and to analyze things, which can help them if they happen to come across problems on a test that maybe they haven't actually learned specifically how to solve. And I think that's what I'd like to see us focusing on as we aim toward testing season. And that is, can we prepare students to be confident enough and have a a deep understanding of enough parts of mathematics that when they see a problem they don't know how to solve, maybe they'll pause a little bit and see if they can figure it out. Kathy, I was just having this conversation with um, a team of coaches and, you know, these high stake assessments, you know, they're, they're not, they're not organized in the way that our textbooks are organized, right? So we're going to cover fractions now and all the problems you can possibly think about with fractions that are these routine math problems is what this test is going to cover. And, and so our conversation was around exactly what you shared. How do we empower, equip, 
um, and provide some deep um, understanding or strategies for students? How do we provide students with those strategies to be able to look at this problem, uh, analyze it, dissect it in a way, and then have a toolkit of strategies to approach it? So what is this problem telling me and about what I might need to know and understand so that I can solve it? And I think that is how Number one, it can't be something that we only think about when it comes to testing time. I think it needs to be a culture of understanding um, and teaching and learning in the classroom. And then the byproduct of that is that students will likely do better on the assessments. And, you know, we were calling it, you know, problem recognition or cognitive task analysis and, you know, all these different names. But we knew that that as as educators and coaches that we needed to support teachers in being able to support students with these non-routine problems and give them strategies in their toolkits to to be able to solve it because it is it is it's not just lined out concept by concept or skill by skill and students need to be practicing that throughout the year i think it's a very powerful um idea that has a lot of bang for its buck to be honest I, th- I think you're right, Mickey. And I think the the notion of students developing strategies for a toolkit, we have to be kind of purposeful in our work that way, because we could turn that into some very rote learning as well. And we could say, okay, here's a strategy for today on how you can learn to deeply analyze things. Well, there may be some overarching strategies like that. And at the same time, there are likely going to be strategies that, that will arise in class or that, the teach, that, a, that a teacher will have an opportunity to point out to in the process of students engaging with good, rich problems that, and focusing the classroom around their discourse about their thinking. And if we really look at structuring our day-to-day instruction that way, maybe not every single day, but as, as sort of the usual typical math class is going to be about, we're going to wrestle with some problems, we're going to think about how to do them. We're going to talk with each other about them. We're going to share your thinking. And then the teacher's role becomes one of sort of crystallizing and connecting what it is that students have been talking about with what are the big mathematical ideas we've just been been wrestling with? What are the strategies that we've used that we can come back to and rely on again and again and again? So I think that we, we should be purposeful as we think about helping students notice what strategies they're using And of course, adding in those that they may not get around to coming up with on their own, but really making that toolkit personal. And I think that comes back to Jennifer's point about students developing their mathematical identity, seeing themselves as as people who do mathematics and think about mathematics and who have their personal toolkit of of strategies. That's such a great point. Uh, Thank you for making that distinction. I just want to add on... um, Before we shift gears a little bit, I want to add that, Kathy, in your book, Faster Isn't Smarter, you have a message about this called putting testing in perspective. And the fifth point that you make in that that particular message is don't allow a test to sidetrack your good mathematics program. And it just feels like a nice place to sort of summarize this idea of there's a place for assessment and there's a place to make sure it doesn't mess up what we know to be good teaching for students and opportunities for them to continue to learn and to not allow things like high stakes assessments to actually derail student learning because of the lasting impact of that on their entire learning trajectory. 
It's hard. It's hard to be a resistor to the pressure of scores and performance and what looks like teacher accountability that may may or may not be in support of high quality instruction. So I think this notion of of not letting testing sidetrack our instruction comes back to teachers having confidence enough that when they teach for with what I think it was Nikki who said that we want to see this culture of understanding and thinking in the classroom. When teachers actually create that and when teachers know that they're building instruction around what's good for students, then I hope that we're also equipping teachers to have constructive, professional, positive discussions with administrators and with their colleagues about the best way to get students to perform well on the test, which is, in fact, I think, to equip them with good content, possibly not all of it, though, and that's that's kind of a scary thought, but at the same time good thinking strategies and good techniques and and a willingness to try and persevere when they may not know how to solve a problem. And those conversations, I think, have to shape, uh, have to sort of influence the the ways teachers approach teaching as it gets closer and closer and closer to uh, D-Day or to the, the assessment day and helping students get ready for that test. And this also reinforces the notion for me that it's so important for us to work with administrators. And in addition to doing actual professional development with administrators or inviting administrators to be part of professional development for teachers, at least in in some small part, I think we can also encourage teachers to help, and forgive me if this sounds a little uh, rote, but (laughs) help train their administrators, train their evaluators uh, to work professionally and collegially with the person who's going to be, or persons who are going to be observing and evaluating what's going on in the classroom so that those people understand what effective mathematics can look like that may be very different from what they experience themselves. I think that's a really fascinating way to think about our role, sort of engaging and encountering assessment. And I can imagine the beautiful, freeing experience of being a learner in a class where a teacher believes that the learning we do all year matters a lot and that my performance on the test is a piece of data and not a defining piece about who I am as a learner of mathematics and continues to identify or, excuse me, continues to support my identity development as a capable problem solver and as a learner in this field more broadly, seeing the trajectory far beyond what happens on this major spring assessment. Yes, absolutely. I I think that um, the confidence that teachers have in teaching meaningfully and leading up to a test can have overflow effect on the confidence students have in approaching that test themselves. And the more students are confident that, yes, I know how to think about things and I may see some problems that I've never seen before, and I'm going to work my way through them and do the best that I can. And I think that Confidence uh, is all part of our mathematical identity, both as teachers and as learners. Hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Kathy, I kind of I want to shift gears a little bit. I mean, not it's not a big sway here, but as we think about the landscape of math education right now, is there anything in particular that's really capturing your attention or um, something that you're finding intriguing that you're digging into yourself at the moment? <laughs> well, there are always, uh, always <laughs> things going on. I'll, I'll identify three here. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about a couple of, of these things. Okay. Um, one is that 
I'm very excited to see more and more teachers who are willing to start off a lesson doing what I call what I call upside down teaching. In other words, starting with that really interesting or engaging uh, or relevant problem, maybe something that that came from what's going on in the world or in in our community, or maybe just an interesting mathematical problem that that isn't contextual. But starting off with that kind of a problem, rather than seeing a good problem as the culmination uh, of a lesson after having taught students exactly how they're going to solve problems that look like that. So I'm seeing more and more energy around this idea of how to structure a math classroom. The truth is, this has been discussed in math education circles for since the 1990s, early 1990s, mm-hmm. when NCTM, the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics, published a book following their first curriculum standards. They published a book called Professional Standards for Teaching Mathematics, in which they really broke down the idea that, that the basic elements of effective math instruction are the tasks we choose, the classroom discourse that we orchestrate within that within the classroom and the overall classroom environment in which students come to feel safe to share their thinking and to persevere through solving problems they may not know how to solve. And now I'm seeing more and more energy around this model. I'm seeing lots of people talking about it. We've seen publications from Math Solutions and from the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics, including their 2014 publication, Principles to Actions, lots of tools from math solutions on how to set up classrooms like this. And as we, as, as I see that, I'm optimistic that we're going to see more and more students feeling confident and being good mathematical thinkers. So that's one of the things that I see going on right now that's, that's got me excited. And then there are two, I won't, I won't call them sort of sidetracks, but there are two sort of spin-off areas related to mathematics that I'm getting excited about. And one of them I, is very popular right now, and that's the whole notion of STEM or science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And what I think we need to be paying attention to is the role that mathematics needs to play within STEM activities, within STEM schools, within STEM programs. And the role of mathematics was nicely spelled out in a joint position statement by the National Council of Supervisors of Math and the National Council of Teachers of Math. I think it was just uh, almost two years ago now, maybe. And the idea is that when we deal with mathematics within a STEM content, we want to really make sure that the mathematics has integrity and is appropriate for students at a grade level. Too often what we see in STEM programs are some really interesting science activities or engineering activities with a little bit of low-level math thrown in to say that that's addressed. So there's lots and lots we could talk about about that and, and think about, but that's one of the things that I think we, that, that's got me interested at least in looking. And I guess one more thing that I think is particularly interesting that I think we are realizing the importance of more and more these days is the whole area of financial literacy or financial reasoning, understanding, being able to deal with notions about money and understanding about money. I think we've seen enough adults in crisis to realize that it's really important to learn money skills. And frankly, we don't have a good place in our school curriculum to do that. It fits so naturally with mathematics that I'd love to see us use more and more of those interesting problems we choose that maybe are related to financial decisions that people are making, even very basic ones for elementary children about choosing what it is they're going to buy with an allowance or with some money that they might have earned. 
so those that that's another area that I think is kind of interesting, and I hope to see a lot more interest in the future. Thank you so much. I'm just fascinated by all three. So we'll be here for the next 27 hours unpacking all three of them with you. <laughs> um, you know, it was interesting what popped in, about 10 million things popped into my head when you mentioned the thing about spending, financial literacy, and um, what that might look like and the role of of those concepts really and their place sort of in mathematics curriculum. And I feel like they're what jumped into my head immediately aside from recent discussions about spending dollars with my six-year-old who's working on understanding that if she spends dollars, then they're gone, which seems to be this notion of like finite resources. (laughs) But if you think about the way that we consume culturally and dispose, we struggle collectively as grown people with this idea of finite resources, that what some things are gone when they are spent or that there's an exchange of resources and that it doesn't just sort of spontaneously recombust. Like when my daughter hands over her dollars to the cashier, the dollars don't reappear in her wallet magically. Um, So those concepts, so the basics around that, which is just interesting for me to think about that personally, but more broadly, I was thinking about this integrated discussion or opportunity in math education for what this financial literacy looks like paired with some notions around social emotional learning and some notions around self-control. Because if we have any hope of um, financial decisions as adults that include looking past what I want today, there's an element of sort of behavioral understanding and cognitive psychology that accompanies an understanding of the math related to that. So I can... I can like do my budget and balance my numbers, but want it anyway and make a decision counter to what makes sense in the numbers. And then we we may or may not have moved the needle in the way that we're hoping to. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, uh, I've uh, recently been digging into notions of financial literacy and what those might look like with, with elementary students in particular. And coming up with understanding the difference between wants and needs becomes a huge part of it. And as you said, it ties right in with social emotional learning as we think about the whole person, the whole child, the whole adolescent, and those decisions and the emotions that go with those decisions and the trauma that goes with those decisions sometimes. And in fact, I'm I'm reading some some fascinating work for adults right now in which um, the author talks about dealing with our money shame about decisions we've made in the past. And it seems so appropriate that we can build a strong foundation for feeling good about your financial decisions or making thoughtful, purposeful financial decisions, just as you say, the same, in the same way we might make decisions about what to throw away and what to keep using or, or what to do with something that we're ready to dispose of or not need anymore. So I think you're absolutely right that this fits in very well with social emotional learning. It has a huge impact on not only a student's mathematical identity, but the student's identity of themselves as a human being. Mm -hmm. So think about this segment of conversation paired with what you said really early on about critical problem solving and creating space where students get a chance to engage as problem solvers and the role that that plays sort of across content, across strands creating the norm that critical thinking is sort of what we're after, as opposed to memorizing an algorithm. I wonder about 
the impact that has on the shame narrative related to finances or other decisions. Because if we normalize learning, exploring, messing up, correcting, adjusting course, if that's all normalized in the way that we learn all of our things in school, what impact does that have on my ability as an adult to say, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done blank with my dollars and can adjust accordingly with the information that I have rather than sitting in the dark with a decision that I wish I hadn't made and being stuck there. Yep. Yep. And having that poison everything else that's going on around you. Yeah. Life. Oh, ab- absolutely. And and I, I keep coming back to this notion, your idea that that I've now heard from from both of y'all that the 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 culture of the classroom having students come to expect that when when I'm doing math class when I go to my math classroom or when it's time to do math lessons that's the time when I'm going to be thinking about stuff and sharing my thinking and listening to what other people have to say and creating a culture that in which that's what students come to expect and mm-hmm. that that's that's what's normal then that becomes the the what's normalized behavior is the idea that thinking and sharing and making purposeful conscious decisions and learning and shifting my thinking if I need to, that all becomes part of forming this human being. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to connect to that, I want to kind of refer back even to something that you said earlier in our conversation, Kathy, as um, you know, when we were talking about tasks that we can put in front of students. So you said it's very exciting because teachers have can make these decisions about the math that they put in front of students. And you also said that it's also a big responsibility too. And um, when I think about um, all in math education that maybe as a teacher, I don't have control over either from at the school site level or just education system in a broader sense. What is exciting and empowering is that I do have an ability to um, have ownership over the math I put in front of my students and the environment and culture I create within those four walls. And I just think that that for me, that's very empowering. Um, and it's within my control and it has a direct benefit to the students that are sitting in front of me. Absolutely. And I think that this notion of what a teacher has control over is, is a powerful idea that I think teachers, um, could really step up a little bit and, and probably have control over much more than they think they do. And at the same time, what you, what you were saying makes me think about the fact that it's not enough to put good materials in front of teachers and figure that that will take care of what happens in the classroom. I've seen good materials with deep, rich problems turned into rote learning exercises if we haven't structured the classroom around letting students wrestle with those problems and letting students think about them and then share their thinking and and the ways in which we orchestrate that classroom discourse, the flow of, of discussion in the classroom, that becomes the biggest, most important part, I think, in addition to having the good tasks and good problems. People always ask me, oh, where do I find the good tasks and good problems? And there's so many places to find those. The trick is, can I then turn that into a meaningful learning experience that will benefit my students? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. That also then makes me think about your second point about what's really capturing your interest or what you're passionate about in math education right now and around STEM. And and you said, you know, we really need to ensure that math has integrity, you know, that the M in STEM maintains its integrity. And so my question for you, um, and it's kind of twofold, as an educator, as a teacher in a classroom, is there a first or a second step of, of advice that, that you might give me? And then I also want to think about this notion as I'm a site leader or a district leader. Like what is what would be a first step piece of advice that you might offer me in thinking about maintaining the, the integrity of the M in STEM? Well, I think it, the truth is it's probably more about the other people that are doing STEM, <laughs> who are doing math. Um, frankly, if a, if a teacher who's strong in mathematics is creating an activity related to STEM, I'm pretty sure that person's going to make sure that that the mathematics in it is appropriate. And then in that case, you want to make sure that the science and the engineering and so on <laughs> are also appropriate. Um, but this comes to me down to me as as an opportunity to really work with our with our colleagues. And it seems to me that STEM activities ought to be created by not just the science folks or not just the person who's an expert in engineering and design stuff, which often feels a lot like science too, although some of it feels pretty mathy. So I'd like to see us working together to make sure that we have, that if we're doing something STEM related, that that it doesn't have to be balanced across all four of the letters, but it should have some kind of uh, appropriate level of mathematics if we're going to say it's in, it's addressing mathematics. And cer- certainly not, we want to avoid having a trivial low-level things that make students come to believe that, oh, math is arithmetic, which or math is just about drawing graphs. Um, so it, it all falls within sort of a, a broad program of uh, how we view mathematics more broadly in terms of our own development and then work with our colleagues to make sure that that philosophy, not just the content, but the philosophy of what we believe is important in mathematics about mathematical thinking and creativity and perseverance, that that part gets incorporated into STEM programs as well as just saying, oh yes, we've got math content. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more, Kathy. Absolutely. Kathy, as you were talking, I was thinking about the just my own journey as a math learner and teacher and then in this role as an instructional designer. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more about um, when you get to this place in your instruction where you've drank the juice, so to speak, about what you would like classroom culture to look like in your classroom, what math, what the math experiences um, you'd like to set before your students as far as tasks. And maybe there is a gap that you're experiencing. I know this has been true in my own practice, the difference between what I'm hoping will have happen in class and then what's actually going on in class. And it maybe doesn't rise to the occasion or rise to the level of problem solving and engagement and discussion that I'm hoping for. And I'm wondering as a teacher, like, what do I shift? Where do I start to look? How do I sort of dig in? And, and keep honing my craft in those areas. Can you speak a little, like sort of the practical tips? If you're in the classroom, there's, you believe in where you're headed and are working on crafting your path there. Sure. I think there's two levels that came to me in that question, Jennifer. One of them is uh, sort of what you do in the moment if 
the lesson isn't going where you'd like it to. And I think it, I, I've seen examples on videos, classroom videos of students who, uh, of classrooms where the students basically came up with the punchline, the exact mathematical outcome that a teacher would want. And that's fabulous. And that's wonderful. And the teacher's role just becomes one of snagging that idea out and making sure that all the students what they've learned. And that's wonderful. More often, I think we're going to see classrooms where that doesn't happen. I think there's times in those classrooms where a teacher is going to, in fact, end up telling kids stuff at the end. The difference is going to be that by the time we get around to that, the students have all been engaged in thinking about this particular concept or idea or problem. And so if a, if a teacher comes to the point where the teacher himself or herself is going to want to sort of do more than just connect, but connect that work one step beyond what the students got to, I think you're going to have a much better opportunity for students to latch on to that because they've been engaged in what's going on. So that's sort of the in-the-moment thinking that in my mind. In terms of the longer term, I think that if overall I feel that my lessons aren't coming up to par, my students aren't get generating the kind of thinking I want, I think this is a, a real opportunity for some collegial work to uh, with a a trusted colleague, or maybe with a group of, of people. Um, I, I think, for, for example, of the lesson study model, where we actually have teachers who may even collaboratively plan a lesson and then observe somebody, one of them teaching it with students and then debrief afterwards. And so I think that's uh, a possibility for how do I get a little more uh, out of these lessons that I'm putting my heart and soul into when they're not turning out quite the way I want to. And, an, a, and another opportunity here is just to invite a colleague as part of discussion within a, a functioning professional learning community. If we really do have learning communities, a learning community in a school or across schools or wherever it might be, even a virtual one, really bringing in some student work to take a look at and say, look, I, I, this is the lesson that I planned and this is the kind of responses that I got from students and I don't understand why it's not what I wanted. I'm wondering if anybody else has another perspective and maybe another teacher who's dealt with that content or even if they haven't, just engaging around the student work to analyze and talk about, well, I wonder if you did this instead of that, maybe that would get you somewhere. So Either way, whether it's through a formalized or semi-formal kind of lesson study or a less formal discussion within a learning community, I think relying on our colleagues to help debrief what we had in our heads versus what actually ended up happening can be real helpful to a teacher. Such an incredible point. I think about when students are wrestling with problems, we allow, foster, encourage collaborative group work. That's sort of how we think through things with more than one perspective. And it seems a natural transition and, and obvious when you say it. And yet also, I think maybe the stumbling block of sort of stepping outside my classroom and saying, who else in my world can help me think through this? Such a great point. Kathy, I can't believe that our time has flown by the way that it has. Um, but one thing I know that I can speak for myself and I, and I know Jennifer will chime in. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and, and just being able to carve out some time to do some deep thinking about several of these topics that you've shared with us today. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed 
having an opportunity to have this discussion. You two are wonderful folks to interact with. You come up with great thoughts and great thinking. And uh, I hope we get to hang out uh, a lot more often and do some of our own collaboration. Absolutely. We would love that. But you're not off the hook yet. We just need you. (laughs) We're going to, we always try and wrap our episodes with what we call three and three. So we've got three questions for you. And I'd like, you know, we can say rapid fire, but you know, take whatever time you need. Um, Here's our first question. What are you currently reading right now? Um, Or is there a book that you would recommend others to read? And it doesn't have to be education related. (laughs) (laughs) Are you sifting through the titles in your mind? (laughs) No, I've got a really good one, actually. And and I, I sort of referenced it in my conversation, in our conversation earlier. It's a book and also a program I'm engaging in, and it's called The Art of Money. Mm-hmm. And the author is Barry Tesler. It's B-A-R-I, Tesler, T-E-S-S-L-E-R. And what I really like about her approach to money is that she brings in, she doesn't call it this, but she's clearly addressing social and emotional learning and the fact that many of us have different money stories, just like we have different math stories, mm. and it helps give some some what some folks might think of as sort of touchy-feely advice and, and counseling along the way on how we can get a handle on our feelings about money and then also learn the tools that we need to learn to sort of shift our thinking about money. So there's a book not about education, but clearly related to to what we're we're talking about and something that I think is uh, fascinating. I think she, Barry Tesler has some really interesting ways of helping us think about our own issues related to money. And I think there's huge implications for what we do in schools, by the way, which is what gets my mind thinking all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's very exciting. I'm, I'm, I'm going to look into that one. Thank you for sharing. What is one thing that Kathy Seeley does to decompress or relieve stress? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm constantly looking for new ways to do that, <laughs> but I, uh, I I do what a lot of people do. I've, I've been on a couple of walks outside today, and I try to do my uh, fitness classes and so on, but I think one of the things for me is Tai Chi, and Tai Chi is all about just helping. It's very slow and focused and, and allegedly about helping you sort of clear your mind of everything else and that never really fully works. And so what it helps me do is say, oh, there's something interfering with my not thinking about anything else and just let it go. <laughs> That's one of my strategies. Well, how long have you been practicing Tai Chi? Uh, let's see, since 2010, so almost 10, about 10 years now. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's incredible. Okay. And then our last question um, for you is, you know, um, what is one universal truth about teaching and learning that guides the decisions that you make as an educator, as a leader, as an author? Um, what's one universal truth about teaching and learning you would like to share? Oh my, there's probably several, but I think, I think at the heart of most of what I advocate or suggest or encourage is based on the idea that Students are only going to learn to think mathematically if we give them lots of opportunities to do that, to think, and then to discuss what it is they're thinking. So I guess that would be my one. I like it. And that's a huge one. (laughs) 
There's a lot in that little statement for sure. Absolutely. (laughs) Kathy, we just want to thank you so much for spending this time with us today. The conversation's been insightful and enlightening and certainly given us lots to think about. For our listeners who might want to find you out on the interwebs, Twitter, et cetera, where would they look? My Twitter handle is at Kathy Seely. I'm trying to do more with that. And I'm trying to frankly expand my outreach via some other avenues. Other than that, folks can always reach me via email and through Math Solutions. Thank you so much. Again, we are just thrilled about this conversation with you and look forward to 1,000 more hours discussing. (laughs) Anytime. Thanks for tuning in. Subscribe, download, and review wherever you find your podcasts to stay up to date with the latest episodes from Method to the Mathness. Your comments and reviews mean a lot to us. So share with us what you think and who you would like to hear from. Come find us on Twitter at Jennifer L. Math and at Nikki underscore Math Soul. That's N-I-K-K-I underscore Math, M-A-T-H-S-O-L. And use the hashtag Method to Mathness. That's Method, the number two, Mathness. Thanks for listening. And until we hear from you next time, stay inspired. Stay inspired.